Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. After I did The Nile Curtain and we went on the road, I wanted to do something which was 180 degrees in the other direction. I had gotten divorced and I started dating these different women. I was going out with models and I was a rock star, you know, a single guy who was a rock star. I was like amazed at my good fortune at the time. And I started dating Christy Brinkley at the time too and started writing songs about these experiences. I, was kind of, I kind of felt like a teenager all over again. All those songs that I remembered from the uh, early 60s uh, R&B songs and the Four Seasons and the Motown music and soul music. And I, that's how I felt. And you don't fight that when you're going to write. You write what you're feeling. And I didn't fight. I said, this, the material was coming so easily and so quickly and I was having so much fun doing it. I was kind of reliving my youth. And um, I, I just had fun. I had a great time making this recording. I wrote a song called Easy Money, which was sort of like a Wilson Pickett, James Brown, R&B track, and I sang it live with the full band. It was so much fun. The rest of the song started coming real fast. I wrote it in the studio. I wrote most of this album in the recording studio. I think within six weeks, I had written most of the material on the album. And it wasn't to, to have hit records. Again, who thought that, uh, you know, songs that sounded like the late 50s, early 60s, acapella, oh, For the Longest Time is another song on here. Who would have figured they could ever be hit records in the 80s, and they were. For the longest time, it was an acapella doo-wop song that became a, a big hit. Uptown Girl was an homage to the Four Seasons, for Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. And it became a hit record. Who would have thought there would be a hit record by the Four Seasons in the 80s? Um, that was, that's where I was at. With an innocent man, Billy Joel took an important step forward by taking a big leap backward. Released August 8, 1983, the 10 song album sold a million copies within two months of its release and four million just a year later. And it boasts a number one single with two more hitting the top 10. The album, famously, is an homage to the pre-British invasion music from Billy's youth. But as stylized as the tracks are, the song cycle is much more than just nostalgia. A close listen reveals a unique mashup of youthful music paired with much more mature, wiser lyrics. But analysis aside, it's easily Billy's most fun album. And it's the one that introduced him to a new set of fans, effectively securing his stardom for the next decade. For this album episode, we're doing something a little different. Along with our biographical information and overall critiques, we did a listen-through where we comment on the songs in real time. Listeners can hear exactly what we're hearing when we make an observation. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's An Innocent Man. Innocent Man, as popular as it is, it's sort of a weird entry in the Billy catalog. We've talked a lot about how he's really made theme albums, if not lyrically, then at least in the way they sound. Uh, this one, I think, is that taken to an extreme, but also that taken to an extreme 
very successfully. Obviously from a pop standpoint, because this is one of his biggest records, but I would argue also from a musical standpoint, I think this some of these songs get maligned mostly because of overexposure or perhaps how people remember more maybe of how they sound not on record, but getting piped through the speakers in their supermarket. And perhaps that does not uh, <laughs> afford the, the, the best, op- the most optimal listening conditions. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I think this record too, a lot of the more casual fans or casual listeners probably associate this record more with the music videos that came with it. The Nylon Curtain had pressure in Allentown and to a much lesser degree, She's Right on Time and Good Night's Like Gone. Uh, as popular videos, uh, those didn't necessarily translate into album sales and they felt a little disconnected from each other in a way. But with this album, Billy and the team really took advantage of the medium, really did very unique videos. You know, the videos have a big cheese factor as well, too. You know, yeah. they're fun. They're light. They're not serious. So I think that kind of helps it get the the rap that it gets from time to time. That's true. Now, as always, I've, I've come up with a theory, a nice through line for this episode, and I'll drop that in a little while when we get into our listen through. Oh, and we're doing something a little new for this episode. Would you like to explain our new direction? A lot of times we'll go track by track through the album and just give a quick little snippet thought or commentary of each song. What we decided to do this time around was actually sit down and have a listen to the album together and talk through it as it plays out. Uh, I've seen a few of my friends' podcasts do it, and it's a lot of fun. It's interesting. It's something that we've talked about on and off over the years, but never have done. Uh, so we thought it'd be uh, a good experiment this time around. Yeah. So this would be interesting. I mean, we gave it a good listen ahead of time, and now we'll, we'll sort of be able to point things out in real time. Let's set the stage here with some information about the production of the album, how it did in sales, and also where it sat in the year, what other albums came out around it. Billy's timeline of recordings during this time frame was so compact. We talked about last fall on our Nylon Curtain album, uh, which that album came out in September of 1982. And the Nylon Curtain tour ended December 31st, 1982 with a concert at Madison Square Garden. The recording for this record started early 83. So there really wasn't too much downtime here between the end of that tour and the beginning of the production and writing for this album. And it happened incredibly fast. Billy would go on record to say that this was the quickest they've made a record and some of the most fun they had in the studio. You know, Billy was coming off of his Nylon Curtain tour, and he was also coming off of a divorce from Elizabeth, his wife of many years and his manager for many years. So here Billy is starting a new phase of his life and his career, being newly single, dating a lot of models and having a good time on the town. He would meet Elle McPherson, date her while on vacation in St. Barth's in the Caribbean. He met one Christy Brinkley and the two of them quickly had a connection that inspired a lot of this record and Billy thinking back to his youth and what was the music of his youth when he was going through that phase of life. The Innocent Man record really was shaped around the music of the 1950s and the 60s. A lot of doo-wop, a lot of Motown, a lot of soul music, while still maintaining that Billy Joel touch. By 82, uh, the band had largely moved out of A&R recording. Phil Ramone had a falling out uh, with his partner, I believe, and they had moved on. I know with the Nylon Curtain, a lot of it was done at Chelsea Sound Studios, I believe. 
which you can see on the Saturday Night Live performances from 81. This album was also done there. And in the spring of 1983, musically, it was probably Billy's biggest, most robust personnel list to date. You know, to go with the theme of a lot of the doo-wop and the soul music, there's the introduction of a lot of singers, a lot of horn players. You had the core band. You had Billy Joel, obviously, Liberty DeVito on drums, Doug Stegmeyer on bass guitar, David Brown on lead and acoustic guitars, Russell Javers on rhythm, electric, and acoustic guitars. And then you also have Mark Rivera, who played alto saxophone on Keeping the Faith, This Night, and Christy Lee, and tenor saxophone, percussion, and backing vocals as well. Here's where we get into the uh, big list of additional musicians who were all involved. Uh, it's it's some absolutely great players who, if if you dig into each of them, I bet you would find a, most of these guys on so many big records in this era, in the 70s and 80s. So you had Ralph McDonald, who did percussion on Leave a Tender Moment Alone and Careless Talk. Leon Pendarvis, Hammond B3 on Easy Money. Richard T, acoustic piano on Tell Her About It. Eric Gale, electric guitar on Easy Money. Fitz Thielmans, harmonica on Leave a Tender Moment Alone. String Fever on Strings. Richie Cuber, baritone saxophone on Easy Money, Careless Talk, Tell Her About It, and Keeping the Faith. John Faddis, trumpet on Easy Money. David Sanborn, alto saxophone on Easy Money. John Shepley, trumpet on Easy Money, Careless Talk, Tell Her About It, and Keeping the Faith. Michael Brecker, tenor saxophone on Careless Talk, Tell Her About It, and Keeping the Faith. John Getchell, trumpet on Careless Talk, Tell Her About It, and Keeping the Faith. Are you sensing the pattern here? (laughs) <laughs> Those are the big horn songs. So it was yeah. a uh, it was a section that largely played together on those three songs. And then we've got quite a host of backing singers here. Uh, all on background vocals, you've got Tom Baylor, Rory Dodd, Frank Floyd, Lainey Groves, Olanada McCullough, Ron Taylor, Terry Taylor, Ron Taylor, Terry Trexter, Eric Troyer, and Mike Alexander. And on the production side, we had Phil Ramone at the helm producing. Engineers were Jim Boyer and Bradshaw Lee. Assistant engineers, Michael Lair, Scott James. Production coordinator, Laura Lancho. Mastered by Ted Jensen. Horn and string arrangements by David Matthews. Background vocal arrangements, Tom Baylor. Musical advisor, Billy Zampino. Photography, Giles Larian. And cover design, Christopher Astupchuk and Mark Larson. And again, recorded at Chelsea Sound and A&R Recording in New York. It was mixed at A&R Recording and mastered by Ted Jensen at Sterling Sound, New York. This is obviously the big retro Billy album. And there was a bit of 50s retro going on in the 80s. I think the two big examples are Everybody's Rockin' by Neil Young, which wasn't a big hit, but also the Stray Cats doing the Rockabilly revival thing. You know who used to play with them? One Tommy uh, Burns. Tommy Burns, yeah. That's yeah. right. I, th- I told you that, sir. <laughs> that, was, that was my bit of trivia that I brought in. None of that is really happening in 1983, as far as albums coming out, what we're seeing in 1983 is sort of an end to what I what I guess we could call like the first wave of new wave, if that doesn't sound redundant. Those first couple bands that were not quite punk, you know, but still rock, they were either peaking or, or on their way down. And we also saw the groundwork for a lot of 80s pop. 1983 you had synchronicity by the police, certainly almost a contemporary of the Sex Pistols, uh, but definitely more new wave. And this is their last album, also easily their most pop. Not new wave, but uh, the final cut by Pink Floyd comes out, and that's sort of their last big thing for a while, like, I guess until the Division Bell, at least. 
uh, Lick It Up by Kiss, a Sense makeup album, uh, not one of their biggest. Flick of the Switch by ACDC, also a little past their uh, Back in Black Prime. Bark at the Moon by Ozzy, uh, I'd say a decent album, but, you know, post Randy Road, so, you know, really not those those classic two. Somebody will get mad at me, but uh, Peace of Mind by Iron Maiden. It's not quite Number of the Beast, you know. We're a little, we're a little past that that peak again. Oh, and then you have your your classic rockers, right? Who are uh, hitting a nadir of sorts. Infidels by Bob Dylan, Too Low for Zero by Elton John, inconsequential Paul McCartney album coming out. Tug of War, yeah. The exception here is David Bowie with Let's Let's Dance, so he'll he'll stay on for a little while longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now let's let's see who's coming up. So 1983, we have Speaking in Tongues by the Talking Heads. War by U2, Your Boys, Kill Em All by Metallica. So those are all either debut albums or near artistic peaks, Pyromania, Def Leppard, Madonna, yep. uh, self-titled, Motley Crue, Shout at the Devil. That was right before Dr. Feelgood, right? So they were on their no, way up. No, Dr. Feelgood wasn't until like 89. Uh, right. So you had Girls, 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 I think in between there, and yeah. maybe one other. So they're, they're coming up. She's So Unusual by Cindy Lauper. We can debate the merit of uh, the Genesis self-titled album whether that was the beginning of the end or the beginning of the successful pop era. Sports by Huey Lewis and the News, that certainly set a pace for 80s middle-of-the-road pop. Rebel Yell by Billy Idol sort of crystallized that real sanitation of punk rock. Frontiers by Journey, uh, Metal Health by Quiet Riot. So we're seeing a lot of the 80s really come into form here. You know, the early 80s, I I, I guess I could say, was its own thing. And now we're seeing like what you think of the 80s is really coming into play here with a lot of debut yeah. albums and a lot of people hitting either their peaks or clearly on the ascent. Yeah. And then, you know, you have the case of a band like Aerosmith who was arguably in one of the biggest uh, downturns in their career. Uh, yeah. This I think was when Joe Perry even left the band. They had night in the ruts was 79, but then you had rock and a hard place in 82 and uh-huh. done with mirrors in 85. Right. That was really the darker period uh, for Aerosmith. And then they had the major, you know, major, major rebound in 87 with Permanent Vacation, followed by Pump and Get a Grip. I mean, three huge records in a row after that. And also uh, Swordfish Trombones by Tom Waits, which is, I would say, like a turning point for him as well is where he got really weird, where he really mm-hmm. left behind the singer-songwriter thing and was just growling and, and playing the marimba a whole lot. <laughs> right. And uh, oh, shout out to some metal here, by the way. Um, Holy Diver by Dio. Show No Mercy, Slayer, uh, Melissa right. by Merciful Fate. And in the middle of this, Billy says, F it, I'm feeling good, I'm getting laid, let's make a retro 50s album. <laughs> <laughs> Rumor has it there was the noticeable bounce in Billy's step in the studio once he and Christy were dating. Yeah. Um, it was just the mood was light and he was in love. I think if he had, if this had been a labor thing, this would have been really the beginning of the end for him. But it wasn't. It was, it was very genuine in a lot of ways. And it sounded like it was fun. And I think that really saved it. So as per usual, you know, I've got my visual aids <laughs> that I always have. I've got like almost a dozen copies of it on vinyl, various versions. We obviously had the original 1983 version. And then there was a uh, CBS half speed mastered version out back then as well. And then I've got some uh, recent reissues of it from Friday Music. Uh, they did a nice, uh, I think it's clear vinyl version here. Mobile Fidelity did a 2LP version, which sounds fantastic. Music on Vinyl did a, a version of it. And as recent as 2021 was the uh, Billy Joel 
Walmart. It was either end of 2021, beginning of 2022. There is a colored vinyl version that was released through Walmart on a custard vinyl, which sounds really, really great. It was uh, well done and they kept the artwork in fantastic. You know, I'm a stickler for quality of the print, quality of the scans that they had to go in and touch things up and add just how well they stick to the original. And these Walmart versions look absolutely fantastic. Who would have thought you'd say that about Walmart? I know. Well, you know, that's the thing. A lot of people say, uh, do these Walmart things sound good? I mean, it's Walmart. How good could it be? At the end of the day, they're they're not the ones making the records. They're not in the business of making records. So whoever Sony is having press these records, they're doing everything. Walmart essentially just provides them with the logo and you know the design, the PDF or Illustrator design for the Walmart mm-hmm. exclusive label that goes on the front. But you right. know they're not manufacturing their own records. It's, it's not a Walmart thing. If it sounds great or if it sounds bad, it all goes back to the uh, the record company. Yeah, have Uptown Girl. And I'll say this too before we get into it. Speaking of that, this record is best listened to on vinyl and especially on 45 if you can because the 45s really pump the high end. As a result, a lot of the songs from the 50s uh, really rock that high end, I think, in, in large part to be heard on jukeboxes, you know, really cut through. So especially something like Uptown Girl, you really hear it's nice and dry. You hear a lot of separation and things and it's got a nice shimmer to it. The LP has that, but not quite as much because it's not rotating as fast. And then, you know, when I went back and I listened to it on Spotify this week, I was like, that's decent, but it's a little more wet. And as a result, doesn't have the same sonic, wider sonic palette. Doesn't have that that bounce, that leanness to it that you think of when you think of the 50s, that dry kind of lean. Lib Snare on record sounds amazing. Like, it's just such a raw... I remember I remember a year, like 20 years ago when I finally like got my second stylus for my record player. Yeah, like I had my parents, and then I had mine, and then finally I was like, I'm. Gonna, I remember I had like no money, and I was married, and I like kind of snuck out and like blew thirty uh, two thousand four dollars on on a new stylus, and it, which was the upgrade from what I had, and I was like, wow, I feel like I'm in the room with this snare drum on easy money. Like I couldn't believe the difference, like just the the extra texture to it. You could almost feel the drum moving as he's hitting it. Oh yeah, especially you know at the beginning there. Yeah, 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 you could really hear the room in that. Yeah. Not so much on the on on the uh, streaming. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think that's why you know, as convenient as streaming is, I think that's why a lot of people are starting to get drawn back into physical again because a lot of people are finally getting hip who didn't grow up in that era like yeah. we did are getting hip to like, wow, it is such a different experience. You yeah, know, yeah. Like you know, the other day I had a record on. I didn't even remember what it was, but I'm I'm just sitting here in my chair thumbing through the liner notes and you know, reading who played on the record and all that stuff and looking at the lyrics. It's an experience. I've never felt like I had that with streaming. So it's great to see a lot of people getting back into it. Fortunately for me, I've held on to a lot of my collection. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, a lot of these things I've had for 20 plus years. So it's, it's been nice to not have to rebuy everything. (laughs) Right. And it's worth noting cassette was my intro to my cousin had it on tape. He used to lend it to me. Did it look a little something like this? Uh, you know, I think it wasn't uh, gray on the bottom. I think it was the old white ones. Well, no, this one always cas- had it. This one always really? had it. Yeah. Huh. This- the, what, what does the actual cassette look like? It's not like the, the black clear kind of thing, right? It's the, the white case plastic. Yeah. It's, it's like, uh, the cassette itself, kind of like a cream color. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that would be what I had. Yep. Yeah. What he had. Yeah. So for some reason, this album and the Cold Spring Harbor did not have white on the bottom. Cold Spring Arbor had black and Innocent Man always had um, a gray. Yeah. And 
you know, in later years, they put it on cassette with a clear cassette, which I have still. Yeah. And then, the, uh, of course, the 1998 remaster, they did them on cassette and uh, CD. And I know this is not a visual podcast, so you can't see it. Jack, you can definitely see as I hold them up to the camera. They really made a lot of use of the real estate between that. Yeah. So there's like that one. And it just right. you know looks really sharp. And this album also did come out on uh, 8-track cassette as well. It was actually the last album that came out on 8-track, believe it or not, was Concert, the Russian album, mm. all the way till 87. But the uh, the fun, innocent man, Columbia House. <laughs> Look at that guy. 8-track <laughs> here. And then uh, this is a good seg- segue as we get into talking about the single. Fun picture sleeve singles over the years, which uh, Jack mentioned. We had the Keeping the Faith single and the B-side to that, which she's right on time. Oh, I found that one recently, too. I do have that one. And the uh, cover of that one is a still from the uh, music video. It's him leaning against the jukebox with the judge kind of looking uh, uh, scornful over the bench. And then you had the Innocent Man single, which the B-side of that was I'll Cry Instead, the Songs in the Attic outtake, which is nice. So a nice shot here, which was actually photographed by Jeff Shock. And um, I have two versions of it because one of them is a promo that just has an innocent man on both sides. So it doesn't have the I'll cry instead info. So we've got Uptown Girl, uh, which it's kind of a yellow cover. Some almost looks like stock photo- photography of like a woman getting out of a taxi cab or getting into one. Billy Joel Uptown Girl produced by Phil Ramone. Uh, the B-side of that one was Careless Talk. And you had The Longest Time with the B-side of that being Christy Lee. And then you had Leave a Tender Moment Alone with the B-side being This Night. And Leave a Tender Moment Alone was essentially the same photo from the album with just different uh, different typeface on the cover. And then uh, Tell Her About It with Easy Money as the B-side. Uh, and I've got various reissues and white label promos and things like that. And, uh, you know, just a lot of different promo stuff from this record from th- throughout the years. One thing that's fun, too, is there's a few 12 inch singles of it as well. I have two from Europe. One's Uptown Girl. It's interesting. They Europe, the European market uh, does a lot of uh, EPs for their 12 inch singles. So Uptown Girl is actually four songs. Yeah. Uptown Girl, My Life, Just the Way You Are, and Still Rock and Roll to Me. And then you have The Longest Time, which says two plus two, present and live. So it has four songs as well. Uh, and it has The Longest Time, Christy Lee, and then from Songs in the Attic has Captain Jack and Bella to Billy the Kid. In the, in the, in the U.S. market, there was a uh, 12-inch promo of Keeping the Faith, which had uh, the special remix of it on both sides. So it's just a 12-inch single, hard to kind of get a look on it but and then tell her about it also got a retail 12 inch single which the a side of that is a uh, remix by john jellybean benitez so it's got the, yeah so you got the jellybean remix to tell her about it on the a side and then on the b side you've got easy money and you got me humming live which again was from the songs in the attic recordings so yeah these are a lot of fun and then uh one little thing I have that you'll appreciate. I was at uh, my friend's record store a few years ago, and he just had this crate of old old album, 12 by 12 album cover flats from over the years. And he uh, said, yeah, if there's anything you want, just you know, root through it and grab it. And he had a couple of uh, Billy Joel ones. So I've got a few of the 12 by 12 Innocent Man cardboard flats, which is pretty fun. And then CDs are nothing too crazy. You know, you had the original in 83 in the US. You had the remaster in 98. And then, uh, you know, several reissues in Japan and the Mobile Fidelity CD reissue. And then, you know, uh, there's the Complete Albums Collection. So there's a handful of CD releases of this over the year. 
But yeah, I think in time we may do some video content where I can actually do a little better show and tell because I think that comes across a little better visually than me just kind of telling you what's in, in front of me. So I'm going to kind of go through retail-wise when things were released as singles. Again, The Innocent Man Record, which we have talked about on the... It's funny, a discography sheet from Columbia Records, the release date says July of 83, but everything I read says August 8th. So we're going with August 8th of 83 as the release date. And we've got um, the Tell Her About It Easy Money with Easy Money single released July 12th of 1983. And you have... That Uptown Girl single, which was released September 13th of 83. Uh, the Longest Time single released March 13th of 84. I'm sorry. And, and the Innocent Man single was December 6th of 83. The Longest Time was March 13th, 84. Leave a Tender Moment Alone, June 26th of 1984. And Keeping the Faith single was released January 15th, 1985, which is incredible that the singles went that deep. And as we talked about earlier, Billy Joel's singles charted quite well for this record for the most part. I'm just going to give everyone the U.S. charts, uh, the you know U.S. singles charts, uh, because it did chart you know several different countries. So 1983 here with uh, the album coming out, Tell Her About It was the number one single. This would be his second of three number one songs with Still Rock and Roll to Me in 1980 and The River of Dreams in 1993. Uptown Girl made it to number three. Uh, it's worth noted, noting that the single for Tell Her About It went gold. And in America, Uptown Girl went triple platinum as a single. An Innocent Man single went to number 10. The Longest Time went to number 14 and went platinum as a single. Leave a Tender Moment Alone went to number 27 in America and did not get certified. This Night did not chart in America, but it went to number 78 in the UK. And you had Keeping the Faith, Rounding It Out, which went to number 18 on the charts. And then You're Only Human came out shortly thereafter in 1985. So it all <laughs> happened fast. You forget what a presence Billy was in the 80s because it was just one thing after another for, for so many years there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the album, it, it sold quick. And, uh, you know, the, the certifications came pretty fast early on. Uh, it was certified gold and platinum on the same day, October 3rd of 83. By October 19th, 1984, it was certified four times platinum by the RIAA in America. Uh, July 6th of 1989, so now you're looking at just before Stormfront comes out, five times platinum. Seven times platinum, October 17th, 1994, which was not long after the Billy Joel Elton John tour. So right. here we are, you know, we're into the river, into the end of the River of Dreams era, and uh, that record is still selling. Here's my theory on the album, the sort of theme to it that's really there beyond just what we're always talking about. And I think this is why the record really worked. It's teenager music written from an adult's point of view. And that's something you don't really hear. The music that he's hearkening back to was either made by teenagers for teenagers or written by adults appealing to teenagers, right? Even, you know, even your Motown stuff, um, the sophisticated, those chord changes can be as beautiful as those love lyrics are, like a lot of it's, you know, it's very simple themes um, articulated very well, you know, in those old songs, you know, and let's, let's go from like, it's my party and I'll cry if I want to is like such a teenager song, you know, but leave a tender moment alone. That's got some, some aged wisdom to it. Well, a lot of these songs do. And when you listen to them, it's like, that's sort of why this works because it's not, he's not pretending he's, you know, 16, he's, he's just, you know, he's writing in that idiom, but he's still talking 
uh, from a as a man who's divorced and back in love again. And that's a you know a bit of a unique place to write from. Uh, but also when you when you put it with this teenager music, uh, it makes it not a novelty. It makes it not trivial. It's it sort of backs it up. It gives it more substance. Had he written this kind of record when he was young, it would like you said, it, it he it wouldn't have had those years on him. So it probably would have been a little underdeveloped in that department. And so it is super fascinating seeing him coming out with this as an adult because it it comes from a whole different place of reflection. Exactly. And you know, and by now he's also gotten really gotten a hold of his lyrical prowess just in terms of, you know, what I always love to talk about that uh just the the syntax and the and the the flow of it. I think a while ago I used to like refer to it as the, the structuralism, the sort of like just the like the effect of like it's satisfying. It's just a, you know the satisfying effect of the cascade of syllables, how it, how it goes together. You know, apart from the meaning of the words themselves, just the sounds of them are very good. They're very relaxed, very um, very natural, organic, and pleasing. Yeah, and that goes back to you know Billy being such a melody crafter. And, you know, before lyrics come into play, it's all the, about the melody. So the even like the vowels and the shapes of what would become the words are there. So he's crafting what's going to be pleasing to, in a sound um, before the words even get on the page. So he's developing that already before he even gets to lyric. Exactly. And that, you know, these are all the things that I, I think are good to listen to, especially if you heard this album a whole bunch of times, listen, listen for those elements and see if it uh, gives you a new dimension. So with that being said, uh, we're going to segue into something brand new. Like we talked about, we're going to sit down and listen to this album together and talk through it a bit. Uh, we've got 10 songs, uh, just over 40 minutes again, released in August of 1983. And if you don't have the track listing in front of you, we've got easy money an innocent man, the longest time, this Night, Tell Her About It, Uptown Girl, Careless Talk, Christy Lee, Leave a Tender Moment Alone, and Keeping the Faith. All right, let's do it. All right, so here we go. This is something brand new we've never done. We're all set up, ready to roll. We're going to listen through An Innocent Man together. Jack, this is the first time I think you and I have ever sat down together and listened to a Billy Joel album. You know, we're several thousand miles apart, so it's not easy to do. So it's fun to, to sit here, and uh, I'm excited to... To experience this together. This will be cool. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, it's first time. That snare drum out of the gate. I love it. Oh, yeah. I love that the Liberty bass drum at the end of the measure is like super fast on this song. Oh, yeah. It gives a nice ripple. You know, this is one of the first instances too where I I took note of Billy's controlled screaming. Yeah. You know, there's there's times on this album where I want a little more grit. Um, yeah. And I think it was done well to be doled out sparingly. Yeah. But he gives it some on this. Yeah. And if I recall from Liberty's book, Billy's on his own in a vocal booth. And oh, everyone yeah. else was playing live, even the horns. Huh. Makes sense. It feels With live, doesn't it? Yeah. That's a really tricky um, bounce back and forth, too, between the backing vocals and, and Billy's on the easy, easy money, you know, that kind of back and forth. Right. And that scream is so hard to do. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, that's probably a big reason why he doesn't do this song anymore live. You know, he yeah. didn't do it much then, but I mean, that's got to rip up the throat if you're doing it night to night. Yeah. Yeah, you, you don't notice how he's, he's shifted tone a little on the second verse here. The first one is a lot more Sam Cooke, and there's a lot of Sam Cooke on this album, but this is straight up Otis. Like, this is oh, Otis yeah. Redding all over. Also, the, uh, the lib drum uh, breakbeat. Oh, absolutely. Oh. Ah, yeah. I love how punchy Doug's bass is on this song. It's I, I don't know. I can't quite tell if he's playing with the pick or just really yeah. aggressive with his fingers, but it's like he's right. really digging in. This part is like they're really in the crack on the swing. Like they're really like almost swinging the pretty much swinging the 16th notes. Oh yeah. Doom. And you know, another great Billy Joel bridge melody. Yeah. Is that his voice going into a Hammond? Like, Ooh, and then it's like the Hammond is question. swelling in from his scream. Yeah, a little yeah. overlay. What's well, also is, fascinating, uh, too, this may be the only album where there's different piano players than him on some song. Oh, that's a good point. So, you know, he did take the approach on this record a bit like some of those records where he's the singer. You know, mm-hmm. he's not playing an instrument like he did on all the other songs and the records. Some of these, he is just singing. We'll take this moment to pour one out for Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> yeah, but this is, and this is an example of like, you know, this isn't like a kid wishing he had money to go to the sock hop or, you know. No. The malt shop. This is like, this guy a little low. This is a little more Ralph Cramden, you know? <laughs> it is. <laughs> yep. Guts. Guts. <laughs> and the fade out. I, You know, a lot of people really criticize fade outs, but I love them. I think now there's such a habit of doing the hard stops at the end of these songs. Yeah. Um, on records. But I, I, I don't know. I love a good long fade out like that. I always would daydream of like, you know, what were the next 20 seconds like? Right. Every once in a while now you get to find out, you know, there's an outtake right. out there. And you, you know what's great too about this one? It fades in, you know, it fades out and it empties into an innocent man where it's like, well, unless you think this whole record is going to be a complete novelty, you know, this one's uh, a little heavy lyrically. Not, uh, not in a real downer way, but he tackles something here. Yeah, it's a little more serious and a little more introspective. It, it, the record stouts are fun with yeah. just a big, you know, open party song, a little naughty in a way. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's really interesting the turn we take with an innocent man. Well, what's interesting is that it it opens with the most lighthearted and the most serious song. So it, like it sort of sets the parameters for the rest of the app. I think all the other songs you can argue fall in between these in terms of being serious or being completely lighthearted. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, these lyrics, like, this is something like, could you, you know, 
this this could have been a contemporary song. This could have been a late seventies singer songwriter fo- uh, song. Uh, just lyrically. Yeah, this is probably one on this record that feels a little more timeless in that respect. Yeah, like live with the fear of a touch. Like that's such a such a specific and evocative line, right? And a very mature one. Oh yeah. This is like sort of in the vein of uh, we'll say what cold cold heart, a couple of those old ones, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. But there's so much there's so much lilt to these lyrics, just how they, they flow out so naturally. Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful delivery. And I, yeah. I like that the arrangement is fairly sparse. Yeah. You know, you've you've got a an interesting staccato picking on the guitar. Yeah. And then the chorus brings in the strings here and it gets a little more sweeping. But I like I like the repetition in the lyrics too. I'm not above some people. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it works out well. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to say a mean thing but okay. when we get to the bridge. But ah. you know. And see, if you keep it what the guitar players are doing here, I feel like this is the school of guitar playing that you don't hear much of anymore, where it's it's super understated, but it serves the song so well and adds such a interesting color. Yeah, but it's, it's absolutely not flashy. Yeah, it's all pocket. Yep. Isn't that reverb on the snare drum? Yeah, like a cannon. Yeah, that's that's what's fun about it. Is like that's a that's a real eighty snare, but everything else is is pretty under the boardwalk. Yeah, They're pretty stand by me. Yeah, Doug might be uh, the secret weapon to this album. Yeah. Mm. Like that's what anchors this whole thing. Like you think of the bass line in this song more than anything else musically, I think. Yeah. Cause you know, a lot of people think it's really the piano doing that. That's that's Doug. That's bass. Right. Yeah. So this bridge coming up, I always love because it's such an argument and it's just like, it's when he loses his temper yeah. and the, and the way the silence just sits afterwards is like so cinematic. It's so, so well done right here. Shouldn't have said that, you know, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I, I have to say that that mars this a little because it's like ah dude you lost your temper like you're, you're talking about hey baby i know you've been hurt i'm gonna be so good and like and then you're not getting through and you pounded your fists on the table you know what i mean right <laughs> and then you're like i'm sorry like, honey yeah yeah yeah. 
Yeah. And you know, you could you can read that as um it's sort of the dark side to this character. Or yeah. hey man, that's what it's really like. It's like, you know, you don't solve a deep, complex emotional issue in three minutes. Right. You know, like this is this this is gonna go on for a while. Like building that sort of trust back in somebody. Not that it's your right. fault, but letting somebody, you know, have that trust takes so much longer than than this song is going to take you know that you're going to yeah. have those moments of frustration like I don't know how how purposeful that was but it's you know certainly Very the more uh, piano. optimistic yeah 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 it's very effective on this song yeah I mean there's, there's about five verses and, and he just he tries to find the character tries to find a different way every time to tell the person what he's feeling and you know in the middle he gets a little frustrated but he goes back to it you know <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah you know the more I'm, I'm reflecting on this the more it's really interesting how it is a love song in a way but not in the leave a tender moment alone this night super hard on my sleeve what i like about this is it doesn't really yeah, it lets your mind imagine what what's going on in this relationship and what's going on in this song. It doesn't hit you over the head with the the scenario. It's the emotions of what's what's coming out of it, but you really don't know what's happening. Billy had talked about that he got the idea for this. There was a big snowstorm in '82 in Long Island, and like there was like this huge snowbank that like pretty much went all the way up to the wall around his property, like the the stone wall he had and. He would like, he'd like ran up there and he was just kind of walking around on top of this wall and it just, you know, the rhythm and the melody just kind of started to pop into his head and it kind of went from there. I could see this as a, as a snowy kind of wintry song. So now we're getting into the first big hit on the record and Innocent Man Again was a single, but track three here is The Longest Time and here we go. Now I've I've decided that I'm putting this song in 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 with uh, "Stay Right to Heaven" and "Freebird." In that you need, only need to hear the song four times a year, at most. <laughs> Any more than that, and you're like you get sick of it again because it's it's been so overplayed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, this song I always think of the video when I hear it, and it makes me chuckle. Yeah. They originally recorded this with different singers, with Billy doing the lead, and it just wasn't giving the same feel that Billy was going for. And again, like with the whistling on the stranger, Bill was pretty much like, "Well, why don't you do it? <laughs> you know, like you yeah. did it." You know. So all of these vocals here are all Billy, and it's it's incredible how how well it works, and yeah. with you know a one man harmonizer with all these different layers and parts. Mm -hmm. The vocals are very earnest. Yeah. You know, very fresh-faced. <laughs> yeah. The high parts in the chorus there, uh, oh, yeah, I'm... it's funny because Mark Rivera historically has the lower voice, uh, but he's the one picked to mime the higher parts on the video. Yeah. So it's <laughs> it's kind of funny to me. And Russell has the higher voice and he's doing the lower part. So it's kind of funny how they flip it around. 
So composition-wise, yeah, you're looking at Billy on all the vocals. Well, hold on. I just want to point out those bombs are so good. Like, bomb, bomb, bomb. You know, very um, Mr. Sandman. Yeah, uh, they've got an elasticity to it. Yeah, they really, they almost feel like they're bouncing off the wall. Right. Sorry, go on. Yeah. And so it's a, you know, very, another very sparse instrumentation. Billy and his vocals are filling up most of this, but you have the finger snaps going throughout. And then you've got Doug on bass guitar and Liberty on brushes. Yeah. It's funny how tentative the, the, the song is thematically for as, as as much as it points toward commitment the longest time this, the longest time that. Yeah. It's really about the, the sort of the moment where he takes the leap, you know? Yeah. Like, I want you so bad is like, that's the infatuation talking and he sort of knows that, you right. know, because he's, he's backing it up with, you know, I've been the fool for lesser things. Like, he knows even... You know, it's not that far from the character in Easy Money. Like, I know that I know I might uh, come out of this on the losing end, but I'm going to take a chance anyway. Yeah, he's not going to stop, but he's aware. Yeah, of his of his situation and what he's doing. Right. Just keep rolling. Yeah. All right. So now we're going to go into this night. This one's one of my favorites, but for this intro. Oh, yeah. Just that, oh, it doesn't work for me. That, that <laughs> yeah. the little vocal thing. How else do you go into it, though? I'm not sure. Just right on that, right on that first, didn't I say? Didn't I say? Yeah. That, yeah. that could work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... This is the first one where I really kind of understood that it's that teen versus thing um, because it just sounds like a like a junior high dance. This ain't even a high school dance, man. This is you <laughs> still got braces on when you're feeling this kind of uh, infatuation, you know, sort of like teenage love. Um, the song starts, the boys are on one side, the girls are on the other side. No one wants to go near each other. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, but but then it's it's about like someone who's gotten like seriously hurt before. You know, like right. you couldn't you couldn't have gotten that hurt in eighth grade. Yeah. yeah. You wouldn't even describe it this way. But this is like right here is so cinematic. This is like the lights are overexposed, they're right in the middle of the frame, the camera's turning around them, you know. Like the three sixty shot and the night is still young. Yeah. The camera's cir- circling them. It's mm-hmm. very cinematic and very emotional. Yeah. But it's got to be like the Wonder Years. It's like they're they're fourteen at most, you know. Like he's still like when they're dancing, they're. It was at that yeah. moment I realized my life had changed forever. <laughs> exactly. Winnie didn't realize it, and neither did I. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, you really pulled that out. But I mean, like, right now they're dancing, but like their elbows are like straight, <laughs> you know, like they they have left room for Jesus. <laughs> They're just like sort of awkwardly going side to side. <laughs> All right. Someone go find a dance scene from Wonder Years and cut this song into it. Yeah, please. It works. <laughs> it's, it's there. It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> I see it. 
Yeah. This is Kevin Winnie's song. Yeah. yeah. That was the word I used. It's panoramic when that hit the. <laughs> and so obviously the chorus is uh, Beethoven. Yeah. <laughs> Great use of it. Yeah. It sort of reminds me in a way, you know, Tougher Than the Rest by Bruce Springsteen? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's sort of like that. Um, Tougher Than the Rest is a little more jaded, but it's it's got that, like, barroom slow dance thing going on, and this is sort of like the still slightly more innocent version of that. Oh, but sure. S- still both in that, like, trying to, like, capture or capturing teenage romanticism through the eyes, through, through the experiences of an adult. Yeah. Oh, really love well that guitar part there. Phone solo here, yeah. And the good saxophone, yep. Saxophone. <laughs> you know, it's funny how these three songs in a row, he's either trying to tell himself or somebody else to forget the past. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, that's a key change, right? Right there. Key change. Yeah. Yep. Bam, bam. That's the big <laughs> That's simple like hits. Oh yeah. yeah, that's some lip stuff right there. Oh, love when he goes up there. This part right here before the this night, I love it yeah. here. Right. Oh, the Oz. Favorite. And I what's love funny it. about it is like that's like a thing he did a lot in the seventies and early eighties, but just by himself. You know, right. like like the breaks and sometimes the fantasy stuff, like, whoa, is you know, that he's he's done that a lot, but this time it's it's masked via uh harmonized backup singers. Yeah. Which is an interesting way of doing it. Love that ending. Do the Joe Cocker and the credits, and now we gotta go right. put our pajamas on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so we're getting now. It's interesting. This next song, song five, uh, was a you know a number one hit for Billy. But if you look at it on a sequence of the record, it is the last song on side one, which is really interesting to me. Obviously, this one is the nod back to the Supremes. Like you know, you can't hurry. Love is the song I always think of. But you know that song is interesting because that came out in '66, right? Mm-hmm. And Phil Collins, in our formative years, had a huge hit with it too. And and Phil's version of it was in 1982. I didn't realize it was that early. Yeah. Just before this album came out, Phil had a big hit with it. You know, there was a bit of a precedent that, that, you know, this might work. Now, this is one that I'd I'd be interested in hearing this um, sans the the 50s trappings or the late 60s, the 60s trappings and just Uh let it rock out. And this is one where, too, um, it's another one of those instances where he sort of trades just pure songcraft for a message. You know, maybe right. not the most, you know, world-stopping message, but, like, he's, you know, he's got something he actually wants to say here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. Although I do think I... uh yeah, right there. Big boy now, never let her go. Like, that's a nice interior rhyme there. Mm-hmm. Never let her. 
you know, I broke when I broke down the uh, when I transcribed the drums, especially the Easy Money and a couple others. You realize that the the charm to them doing these off the cuff is like, especially at least the drums. They really didn't have time to overthink things or get too fancy. Like you can hear just that, like you can't do nothing but stay on that groove. Yep. Because like it's a take. Yeah. That that really works to its advantage. Well, you know, I was listening to an interview not too long ago with Steve Lukather of Toto, and he was talking with Rick Beato about making records back in the day. And he's like, you know, Uh back in the day, the worst thing we could do was over rehearse a song before we cut it. Uh-huh. Because what you want to capture is that initial instinct. Right. Before you beat it to death. Yeah. And so he say, always says that some of those best takes were the early takes where they're still kind mm-hmm. of figuring out the groove and the parts. Yeah. And just playing what's the instinct, what the song calls for. And I think you, you hear that a lot in some of these recordings. Yeah, you want to capture that sweet spot of like when they finally figured it out, but before they've got it really down to a science. Right. We blew past, by the way, listen, boy, it's not automatically a certain guarantee. Like, that's a that's a tightrope walk of a line. And, you know, yeah. on the album before, he, he shifted the accent, threw an American flag on our face, and nobody knew what the hell he was saying. Right. Uh, and I feel like he figured it out this time. He got through it so much better. <laughs> yeah. And that's the, that's the thing about this one lyrically, you know. As much as I said, like he sort of drops a lot of that just to get the point across. This, there's some uh, big words in there: constellation. You oh know. yeah. Um, Doug's playing with a pick here, I think, too, kind of driving it forward. Yeah. Has a little more attack. I'd love to hear a version of this without the, the horns, just to see what it sounded like, and then wonder what else you could put on instead. Yeah. Well, and originally, there were more background vocals that ended up getting cut for the final version. Oh, yeah. There's a there's a remix out there that uses the original vocal tip, backing vocals, uh, and it's pretty different. Yeah. long fade out yeah it is which on the video now he's, now and he's, a single it got chopped considerably at the end here oh uh, yeah now he's doing the he's hitting that Otis writing thing again at the end there Yeah, again, this is another song that I always had strong memories of the video. Yeah. And this was also kind of Rodney returning the favor <laughs> for Easy Money. Yeah. Making the funny cameo. Motown had a very specific recording sound. Um, oh, so yeah. So obviously, you know, this is a much cleaner recording than a lot of those old songs, but the groove is there, the feel is there. And for me, you know, growing up in uh, the Detroit area, I grew up on a steady intake of Motown. Right. That was the music growing up. You know, my mom grew up a stone's throw from Hitsville. 
the studio and where the label was. So anytime I hear a, a taste of Motown, it's it's a lot of fun. And this came out when I was you know turning three years old, so I clearly didn't make the connection then. But as I grew up and got it, I loved the tip of the hat. So if you've got your vinyl copy or cassette copy, now we're going to flip it over to side two. Again, this is a great one to listen to on 45. Yeah. It's so funny because so many of my first listens, you know, and for many years were on vinyl, you know, 45 or the full album. And you would get used to where the noises, the surface noise and the scuffs were on the groove. Yeah, on your specific piece of wax. So it's like, oh, there's a little thing here on my copy during this part. You get yeah. used to it. So when you hear like a clean digital copy, like I remember the first time going that route and even going to CD, it threw me for a minute because like to me, these pops and clicks were like so part of the experience as a right. kid. You know what I think gets me about this song in, in a bad way? It's the Four Seasons and I hate Frankie Valley. I wonder who's doing the hand claps on this one all the way through. Yeah. Yeah, the hand claps really do the do the trick on this. Yeah. It kind of holds it together, the groove. Yeah. Now this like this is another classic Billy B section though. You know. Like it's just a great melody right there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like if he wasn't doing a Frankie Valley thing, I'd be I'd be a little more okay with it. Oh yeah, but like Frankie Valley, I felt like was always so full of shit anyway. So like you're <laughs> you're, you're you're adding artifice to artifice at this point, and it's right. It's like too well, much then, tape hiss. <laughs> right. Well, then did you hear the Frankie Valley version of this song? I'm, I do not want to. <laughs> <laughs> we'll cover it in an upcoming episode. Ugh. Nice breakdown here. Yeah. Again, I associate the music video. The cars and motorcycles are revving. Yep. Yeah. Another classic video to me. I always loved it. And this works great. Like just the dum dum you know, just to break that part. It's got a lot of muscle. Oh, yeah. Yeah, see, like this one, there's not as much adult in it, and so it's not as interesting. Right. You know, I'm going to give another shout out to David Brown and Russell Jabbers. There's some guitar work going on here. It's one of those situations where you don't really hear it, but if you took it out of the mix, you'd be like, something's missing. You'd notice. Yeah. It's so understated and it serves the song and gets in the way of nothing. Right. Um, but it's just a nice little bed underneath all yeah. the vocals and the drums. What do you think? Low point of the album? I mean, it's a high curve, but yeah, it's um, the Yaz. The Yaz I can't do. The rest of it I can. <laughs> 
I think if the Yas weren't there, it would like definitely go up several rungs in my book. Yeah. I, I still like the song. Oh but yeah, yeah. The, the Yas just don't quite do it. Like even the backing vocals are cool, but the Yah 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 are a little too. I don't know. But they're too far in the mix. If that was like a enough. real like Sam Cooke thing, it would have been like it would have been it would sounded much more organic. And yeah. This is Chain Gang, right? Pretty much. That's yeah, the like sound Chain, of the Chain men Gang and what's the other on, one? Yeah. Uh, my playlist that came out a little bit ago here. Uh, it. Uh, what was the other song that I used? Yeah, so, yeah, Chain Gang is, you know, was definitely one. And um, I'm looking at Sam Cooke's singles to figure out. There's a few. It, it's just definitely in that vein. And, you know, with the Nylon Curtain Tour, they used Chain Gang as the music right before they went on stage. So, you know, they were hearing Sam Cooke every night as they were gearing up to walk on. Right. Uh, so that definitely played a big influence, like, more recently before they yeah. went in to do the record. Yeah, it's just so, so Sam Cooke. It's like it's oh, it's, yeah. it's it's close. To, it's it's very close to straight imitation, but he really hits it well. Um, mm-hmm. What's great about this song, though, lyrically, it's 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 that um, alternating between scene and summary. Like there's times he's just kind of talking about what he thinks, and then yeah. like there's this like little snippets of, of very. Uh, specific scenes like this in the heat of a passionate you know um, mm-hmm. in the shadows on the thing uh, the shadows on the phone yeah uh, in the conversation share like I just said you know just these one these couple of moments that like it goes from abstract to this very specific sp- scene you know this is a specific yeah. moment I think what, what the other thing that holds us back just a little is the same problem that that held back that's not her style is that this isn't something the average person, you or I, certainly can can latch onto. Like, we don't have to worry about the tabloids. You know, right, you can't even, right. I mean, you could ascribe this to like high school gossip, but it's not, you know, we know what it right. is, is the problem. Yeah, this was definitely the precursor to that's not her style in that way because, mm-hmm. you know, um, certainly, oh, okay, you know, I, I've, figured out the song i think the song that i used was wonderful world which has this oh, kind okay. of similar groove of delivery too yeah. you can probably find half a dozen sam cook songs or more that work oh yeah yeah it's an interesting song that probably it's funny you know, coming off the heels of Uptown Girl, how many, how you people probably know this song. Right. <laughs> and would realize yeah. it's even a Billy Joel song. Lots of fade outs on this record, which I like. Say again? A lot of fade outs on this record, which I yeah. enjoy. Yeah. Now, I would say this is one of the most divisive, one of the more divisive songs in Billy's catalog. I think yeah. people like dig it or really, really, really don't. I kind of dig it. I get it. Yeah, it's fun. You know, I yeah. I think now, especially after discovering the original demo for it, like a studio outtake on the My Life set, where it was yeah. had a totally different flavor and feel. 
I feel like this is one of those songs where they just didn't know what how to do it, like what they wanted to do with it yet. Right. So they I love tried that one it a couple line. ways. He, yeah. yeah. I love that one line. He used to fake the stock arrangements. Oh, stock arrangements or stack arrangements? Either way, stock. it's it's, a, it's just I, I, I prefer to think it's stack. <laughs> like the, when you when you stack the horns on top of each other. Yeah. But I know it is stock looking at it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But uh She was a nice like that long note, like that's that's like a kind of classic Billy moment right there. Yeah, for as for as percussive as the melody and the lyrics are on this one, like he, you know, he he kind of comes through right there. Oh yeah. And then another bridge. You the bird like the Bible. That's like another great little musical reference, Charlie Parker. Yep. Little lick from David. <laughs> yeah, it's you know it's a fun song. You know, again, it's the yeah. the record overall has a light, fun theme, and you know, I think Billy always loved to be the guy just like sit in a dive bar jamming, right? And, and this this is that, yeah. I like that. It it almost feels like a uh, callback to Easy Money. The man took a calculated gamble. <laughs> yep. I don't know. There's something about this verse I love. They say that Joe became a winer. He drinks alone. Like I don't know. It's just very well done. It sounds like something yeah. like I would hear my father or something say in, in a weird way. Like <laughs> yeah, ah, you know, I got, what happened to him? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And you hit the hard now. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny. It's like. It, it actually, you have to like sit and look at it because you're like, all right, well, you somehow. St- talking about Chris singing about Chrissy Brinkley it's like but it's not a happy song you know like because he gets you know, he gets burned right but, but it, you know what it just comes out it's like it's almost like he's, it, it's almost like he's teasing her with it you know what I mean right right like if you take the character from the longest time and how he's on the precipice and he's a little worried about it it's like at this point he's so confident that he can like you know, taunt her, be like, "Oh man, you're gonna you're gonna break my heart. You're gonna be horrible to me." You know, and and and, and <laughs> right. have it be a joke, you right? Know? Like that—that's what makes it so funny. You know. Well, you think you know? It, it always made me laugh in interviews where he's like, "It's not about her. It's just the name that fit the thing." And you know, it, it doesn't help that Christie's middle name is Lee, Christy Lee Brinkley. Okay, yes, it may not have been about her, but. Laura wasn't about a woman named <laughs> Laura. It was about your mother. I find it hard to believe that that's the only name that worked. The next track here, we get a big, big, big uh, feature spot uh, from Toots Thielman's. Ready for this? Yeah. This is the companion song to Sleeping with the Television On. Oh. Interesting. Both about the guy that doesn't say something. Yeah. 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 Okay. 
Wow, I never thought of that. And what makes this one funny is that it's this is a different kind of vulnerability that he's showing on this one. Um, you know, you talk about the longest time where it's you know he's being sort of brave and he's he's confronting that that moment where he's going to take a chance. Yeah, uh, you know, this is way more vulnerable where he's just looking at like just when he's at his most nervous. Oh yeah. But it's cool. I love the, the piano part. part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, leave a tender moment alone. It's a great... It should have become a saying on its own, you know? <laughs> I'm surprised that didn't catch on more because it's it, it's like, yeah, you know, you, sometimes yeah. you just have to leave a tender moment alone. Yeah. And Billy, historically, as referenced in his lyrics, had a hard time with that. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Nice percussion. I did yeah. that. Mm-hmm. And you know, musically, the feel of it, again, it's Toots Thielman's, but like the ending credits of the Sesame Street theme, where they <laughs> play it in this slower feel. Right. <laughs> well, I think it, I have to check the chord charts or something, but like, that bridge, I think it's like a depth change, like the mi- if not a key change, like just going to the minor, the relative minor or something. Very, very seamlessly. Right here, yeah. Right here, yeah. yeah, it's like these are definitely different notes he's using, but they fit really well. I mean, you can even... Is this sort of what's also happening in an innocent man? Uh huh. You know, it's like maybe the problem with an innocent man is he's filling in the gaps too much, right? And now he's learning to like just let let the moment sit, you know? Yeah. Because it's suddenly just when I'm in a serious mood, she's suddenly quiet and shy. Yep. Yeah. And that's a nice twist on the words here if that's how I mm-hmm. feel it's the best feeling I've ever known it's like that's a good way of like describing being in love like even like the the it's tough parts are fun. real like yeah you know? yeah yeah really good lyric yeah And so the story and, you know, goes with, you know, the story goes with this one too. It's like they wanted him on the record so bad that Phil or somebody flew out to France with the tapes, right? And uh, got him to record it. Yeah. Now, you wonder if this one gets a little landlocked because it's, you know, early '80s, and then it's like the pastiche thing. But just out of curiosity, I want to commission somebody to do the uh, slow acoustic detached hipster indie girl version uh-huh. just to make the point that i think it's a little more universal and i think it's more uh malleable of a song than it yeah. sounds like on its face i think it could really translate different ways yeah i think it could too i'd love to see someone breathe some new life into this song you know stylistically it's kind of interesting it's kind of a double you know there's definitely some smoky robinson in the vocal delivery that smoothness mm-hmm. that smoky does so well uh, i can't point to a specific song 
but the groove, albeit a different time signature, is very Burt Bacharach. Like if you think of uh, if the the world, what the world needs now is love. Oh yeah, that's the groove, even though that's right. in three four. Um, so it's an interesting mixture of those two vibes. Um, you know, with the beautiful that beautiful harmonica, which you know. You heard of Motown, you know, Stevie Wonder playing on a lot of great records, that beautiful, mm-hmm. smooth harmonica stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's a callback to, to Little Stevie Wonder. Right, <laughs> yep. <laughs> now we're coming up to the last song on the record, and Keeping the Faith, you know, the story goes that they're in the studio here working on the record, and, you know, obviously it's very 50s and 60s, and Russell's just kind of goofing around to uh, playing Cleanup Woman by... Uh, Betty Wright, he's playing a real cool lick to that song, which was like super early 70s. And Billy was digging it. So he took that idea, went home and wrote Keeping the Faith. If you listen back just a couple episodes back in my playlist episode, ton of similarities in the feel, the groove, the guitar part. This is also one of the few instances where there was a hit song at the end of the record. A lot of Billy Joel's second sides of the records were like fan favorites and deep cuts. And this one is really well known yeah and that's something we were discovering as we were doing our album closers episode just recently right it, it hadn't occurred to me until we were starting to dig through it that that was like a super rare occurrence yeah I mean it was basically this and uh, Piano Man yeah with Captain Jack yeah Talk about playing only what the songs needs. Liberty is literally playing kick and snare throughout this whole yeah. song. Yeah, if you go to his uh, to his drum instructional video and he gives the um, the alternate drum rhythm that he used, like from the bridge on, it's almost uh, sissy strut. Yes, very sissy strut. Yeah. I can totally hear it. Yeah, it develops a whole different beast live. Right. Now, here's what gets interesting here. All these shout outs... Yeah. What I want to do is contrast this with how badly it's done now in modern pop country. Like I always joke about modern pop country, it just sounds like a bunch of uh, index cards and they just shuffled them, you know, you know, pickup truck, 4th of July, you know, all these different things. And they don't mean anything. And, you know, what Billy's doing here, like, it's just funny. It's like he's just throwing out all these references, but he at least like... There's a nice little through line to them. You know, they, they, they right. flow lyrically. And yeah. then he comes out of it again. <laughs> you know, like he's got something else to say after that. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a tight rope here. And he weaves in yeah. and out of it so, right. so well. And then he goes into the bridge, which is great. And this, this melody is great here. And that's what makes this work so well because he takes like these two stanzas and he just talks about all these specific things and then he like steps back and reflects on them in the bridge. Like you can get just so much from these things, you know, but you still have to look forward, you know. And that's, um, I feel like that's important now because the, yeah. I, I think a lot of people are really holding on to rock and roll way too tight. Like, right. stop, stop expecting people to make it now. Like just celebrate what you got you know right let, let the young people have their thing and, and just step out of the way yeah i always like that line the good old days weren't always good and tomorrow ain't as bad as it seems yeah yeah 
an awful lot of late night driving food Drank a lot of take home pay I thought I was the Duke of Earl When I made it with a red haired girl in the Chevrolet Oh yeah We were keeping the faith Yeah, 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 yeah Keeping the faith And if, you know, if you listen to Liberty's drums here across the album they all work together song to song but like there's a lot of different drum sounds throughout this record yeah. based on the type of song that's true oh wanted to point out again Doug's part on this is like deceptive yeah he's playing so little he's doing these slides on the verses listen for this right that's it <laughs> yep yeah but it really ties the room together, dude. Oh, yeah, it's... And then he's onto the quarter notes to push push this part forward. Right. I like nice that little, little part. That little yeah. fill. Yeah. You know I'm keeping the faith. Oh, you know why. Well, there you have it. This was fun. Yeah, this was fun. This worked out well. Billy Joe's smash hit 1983 album. Arguably the record that propelled him for the next 10 years, at least. As always, we throw it back to you guys. Um, what are your first memories of this? Did you get it when it first came out? Did you discover it later? Were you already a Billy fan? Was this the one you came online with? Do you get all the references? Did it sound richer to you immediately? Or did it just sound like a record to you and you went back later and, and found out all the pastiche that goes on? Let us know. Glasshousespodcast at gmail.com or find us at this, on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Uh, Glasshouses uh, Billy Joel Podcast. Yeah, I'm very curious about all that as well, too. And, you know, I think probably a lot of that's going to be determined by the age. Me being three to four years old when this came out, it was just a new Billy Joel album. And I know friends of ours like Jeff Fisher, who was a big Billy fan in the 70s, loved the Nylon Curtain, probably started to fall off a bit with An Innocent Man. And I think I can imagine a lot of people who really loved the 70s Billy and even the early 80s stuff where it was like pretty different compared to this record. I, I can imagine... Were people crying sellout on this record, being like, oh, he's doing like a an overt pop record that is so obviously for music videos and, and, and radio. You know, let us know what your thoughts were on that. And also, if you're willing to share what your age was when this came out, because I'm very curious if your age played a part into how you felt about the record when it came out. The listen along too. this is something brand new for us, like we mentioned. So I had a lot of fun with it. I would like to do more of these again and. If you guys dig it, you know, we may continue doing that and continue having it a part of our uh, album celebration. And 1983 was the year of an innocent man. And here we are 40 years later, which is absolutely hard to believe. And yeah. it's exciting to be celebrating this record. And it's a lot of fun to listen back and to reminisce and to kind of dig in to what went on behind the scenes. Billy's had a lot of hardship in his life. You know, he's had a lot of relationships that didn't go well. He, uh, he, business things that didn't go great and so i'm glad that billy was able to capture a moment in his life where things were going well and he was just a guy in love having fun 
I'm so glad he had the wherewithal to hold off And So It Goes. Now, I don't know if you guys know this too, And So It Goes was written essentially for this album in 1983. Whether it was him or him and the band or him and Phil, every, you know, whoever was part of the decision uh, wisely chose to put that song away for a minute until it made sense because it would have stuck out like a sore thumb on this record and uh, the record's a million times lighter as a result. But uh, yeah, let's, uh, I don't know, let's let's just see ourselves out. <laughs> Longest time style, right? We'll just, yeah. We'll just slowly walk away. Walk just out of walk the bathroom the and walk away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, great, great, great old old-fashioned fade out for the podcast. All right, we'll see you next time. We'll see you soon, everyone. Thanks. Thanks.